All right, so you've all heard about the Pied Piper story, right? That's an old German, uh, I don't know if it's a fairy tale or folklore or whatever you'd want to call it. Um, some, some actually think it was based off real events, um, and it's just kind of been spun into this fantastical thing over the years. Uh, but the idea of the Pied Piper is pretty simple. It's a very morbid story when you actually think about it. Uh, but it, it's basically a guy shows up to this town that's infested with rats. He promises that he can get rid of the rats for a, for a sum of money. The town's leaders agree to that price. And so he plays this instrument and leads all the rats out of this, this German village of um, Hamelin? Hamelin, I think, is what it is. Anyways, that doesn't matter. Um, he gets all the rats out, and, uh, and then he comes back for his payment, right? And the story goes, they, don't de- they decide they're not going to pay him, or some versions of the story say they're going to pay him much, much less than what he asked. And so while all the adults are in church one day for this special service, he plays his instrument again and leads all the children of the village to their doom, all right? That's good classic German fairy tale for you. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's the Pied Piper. Now, we all know that story. Um, it, it's been told many, many times in a lot of different ways. Um, in a sense, though, what Paul is warning the Corinthians about is similar to that story in, in that they are potentially being deceived and led astray from Jesus Christ, there's these people that have come into the church. He's going to call them the super apostles uh, in this passage. Um, the super apostles was probably a name he gave them as a way to mock them. Um, but they were people who were basically trying to uh, subvert his apostolic ministry and say, you know, uh, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. You need to listen to us. And, and Paul's giving them this warning that these super apostles are like the Pied Piper, though he was writing this way before that story was ever written. Um, but it's the same idea, that they're, they're being lured away from Jesus. And he wants to help them uh, get, their, get, get themselves back on focus, back on mission, back on the, the task at hand. And so what we're going to see here is something that was true in, in the first century when Paul wrote these words some 2,000 years ago, where it's still true today that not everyone who claims to be a servant of Jesus Christ is actually a servant of Jesus Christ. Just because that's what they say they are doesn't mean that's what they are. In fact, there are pastors, church leaders, teachers, missionaries, evangelists, usually the ones on TV, by the way, that's a clue, um, and even politicians out there who will say they're doing the Lord's work, that they're doing this for Jesus, but actually what they're doing is deceiving people, selling some bill of goods to them that they can't deliver on, and ultimately leading people to hell. And it's a serious thing. It's not a joke, and Paul doesn't take it as a joke. Paul doesn't write this off as just a little quirky group of people. He's he's actually going to be very, very strong with them here and speak very harshly of them. Um, and, and yet we still live in a world where that's still true. That's still true. We're, we, we cannot um, just listen to what someone says and assume that they're doing it for the right reasons or assume that they're doing it for the Lord at all. We have to use discernment. That's the key. 
We have to be discerning. And so what Paul's going to actually do for the Corinthians, he's going to do for us too, which is help us identify or spot true and faithful servants of Christ versus false ones. What kind of markers or signposts do we need to look for in people's lives to help us discern who they are and whether they're some sort of charlatan that's trying to get something from us or serve their own selfish end or, or are they truly serving Jesus? And so that, that's, that's where Paul's going to go. And I think one of the things that's good about preaching through books of the Bible is that we just have to talk about things as they come. We don't get to pick and choose. And so this may not be a topic we would ever choose to talk about, but thanks to God, we can, we can talk about something we need to hear and we need to assess, even if we would prefer not to talk about it, we, we get to, and, and uh, it's because we just get to walk through a book to do that. So, so I'm grateful for the time we have this morning. All right, so we're going to break this into three sections. There's basically three paragraphs in the first 15 verses. That's all we're going to get through today is the first 15. Uh, so we'll split this chapter essentially in half, uh, do the, the last half of 11 next Sunday. Um, but the three kind of categories or things that we should be searching for, looking for, assessing um, are, are laid out in the first 15 verses. So the first uh, section is verse 1 through 6. Let me read it. I'll read it all. And then we'll back up to, the, to verse 1 and we'll talk about it. Um, here's what it says. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. All right, so as we look at that first paragraph, Paul's primary objective for the Corinthians is for them to look out for what's being taught. So we start with what we hear, right? We start with the surface. We start with what are they actually saying? And, and here, here's, the, here's the key things, right? He starts in the first three verses by just basically sharing his heart with the Corinthians and saying, guys, I have loved you and I am jealous for you and I don't want you to abandon Jesus for these false uh, promises. He says in verse two, I have a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's basically putting himself as the father of these people and Jesus as the husband. And he's like, you guys are like my daughter. I'm bringing you down the aisle. Jesus is your husband. And, and I've passed you on to him. And, and now you're going to walk away from him. And that's where he's at. That he's so, 
concerned about this. He says, he goes so far as to say, I'm afraid in verse 3, that as the serpent deceived Eve. So way back in the Garden of Eden, we know that this happened in Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve lived in a perfect sinless world, a world that was very good, a world that God had made perfect. Everybody reflected God the way they were supposed to, but God gave the people, Adam and Eve at that time, one uh, command, one rule to follow, one act of obedience, and that was to not eat one particular piece of fruit from one particular tree. And everything else was fair game. And, and so, of course, the serpent, who is Satan disguised up as a snake, goes in there, slithers in there or whatever, and talks to Eve and says, you know, God doesn't really want you to be happy. If you ate this fruit, you'd be like God. God doesn't want that. God, God wants you to live in your ignorance. But if you just eat this fruit, man, your eyes will be open. You'll be so, so much better off. And of course, Eve and Adam, who was, by the way, with her, the text says, he wasn't off somewhere else. He was watching this whole thing go down and he didn't step up and be a man uh, and actually lead in this. So he's just as complicit in it. But Eve was deceived first. She then eats and then lets Adam eat as well. And Adam willingly chooses to eat the fruit as well. And Paul says that just like that happened, I'm afraid that that's happening to you here. So by implication, what's he saying? He's saying that these super apostles are working for Satan. And he's actually going to double down on that at the end of this passage too. Um, he's, not, he's not like playing games. He's going, these guys are not just like having minor disagreements with me. They are actually undermining the ministry of Jesus Christ in your life. Don't listen to them. And then Paul starts to give them signposts to pay attention to what's what's being taught. Remember, the first signpost is look at their teaching. Look at what's being taught. And does it, does it actually jive with what we've been taught in the scriptures? That's what he's trying to get at. Look, look at what he says. He gives three things. Well, actually four things. I guess the first is kind of implied in the first three verses. The, the first question that has to be asked is, are these people leading you to or away from Jesus? That's Paul's point in the first three verses. These people are not leading these pe- the Corinthians towards Jesus. They're actually pulling them away. That's, that's a big red flag. All right. And now we're going to get into the complexities of this later on, but that's one of the things we've got to look for. Are they leading us to or away from Jesus? Uh, secondly, look at what it says in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims, another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Are the things being taught about Jesus in alignment with who we know Jesus to be from the scriptures? Or is it another Jesus? See, see, that's the thing. That's, that's the hard thing is that the, the serpent doesn't just outright lie. He deceives Right? He manipulates truth just enough to make it plausible, but not so much to send all the alarm bells going off. That's how it works. He, Satan is a smart deceiver. He does not just come out and say, hey, uh, you know, Jesus isn't real or whatever. He's going to manipulate and twist Jesus into a th- thing that he is not so that we would still believe it and buy it because it sounds plausible. 
And Paul says these people are coming to you and they're proclaiming a different Jesus than the one we proclaimed. And Paul's, of course, an apostle of Christ who's speaking on behalf of Jesus. Paul met Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. Paul knew Jesus and he was bringing the real Jesus to the churches. And and yet here these super apostles are coming in and they're, they're still talking Jesus. That's what's so tricky about all this. They're still talking Jesus, but they're not talking about the true Jesus. So that's the first thing. Are they leading you to or away from Jesus? Are they proclaiming the Jesus of Scripture or another one? Look at the next thing. It says, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. So, of course, he's speaking about the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When they became followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, lives within us, confirms the ministry of Christ in our lives. Um, But but Paul's saying, you know, there are other spirits out there. They're not all on the same team as Jesus. So maybe what you're receiving is not the Holy Spirit, but an evil spirit. Are these people that you're hearing from, are they working out of the power of the Spirit or out of the power of another spirit? And the way you discern that, of course, is looking at the fruit of the Spirit in their life. You're never going to have perfect human leaders. You're never going to have human leaders that don't struggle with sin but is there a consistency of the fruit of the Spirit in their life or not? And if, if there's just no indication that the Spirit's at work in them, then they're probably not working on Jesus' team. And then one more thing he says here is this, um, in verse 4 still. He says, Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. And he, here's the thing. So the gospel is a word that means good news. And the good news that the Bible teaches is the good news that Jesus Christ came into our world, who was very God of very God. He was was on the throne. He enters into our world as a man, but a perfect one. He had no sin nature. He never sinned. He never fell. He never disobeyed. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He did that for us. He goes to the cross to die as the perfect sacrifice for sin so that we didn't have to die for our sin. And he rose again from the dead, conquering sin, defeating it once and for all. That is the gospel. But here's the problem. There are lots of other versions of the gospel that are actually going to lead us away from Jesus and not to him. And the most prominent one, the most famous one, of course, is not the gospel of grace, but a gospel of works. A gospel that says you can do this yourself. You can save yourself. You can help yourself. You can make yourself what God wants you to be. And that's a subtle thing because it's, it can be wrapped up in a package that looks really good, like, well, I'm just trying to be obedient. And, and yeah, there's a place for obedience in the Christian life, of course. So that's why it can get so confusing and twisted. But, but you got to understand that obedience flows out of free grace, not the other way around. Grace doesn't flow from our obedience. Our obedience flows from grace. And if you twist that and get that all tied up into knots, you have lost the gospel. And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, these people are preaching a different gospel. They're not preaching the same message that we are. And then he says, you put up with it readily enough. 
You're putting up with this. He's like, it's got to stop. Then he says in verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. See, one of the things these super apostles were doing was they were trying to undermine the apostle Paul. That's what we dealt with last week in chapter 10. They They were trying to undermine his ministry, sowing doubt in the Corinthians' lives to say, well, maybe Paul's not all he's cracked up to be. And one of the things that they accused him of, which we saw last week, was him being a bad preacher. He wasn't good at verbally communicating the way that the super apostles were. And so he says here, uh, I don't consider myself least inf- in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. He's like, I may not be skilled in speaking like they are, but I am not so in knowledge. See what, he sa- see what he's saying there? He's saying, I may not be the best speaker that you've ever heard, but I know what I'm talking about. I've been given these things from Jesus. What I'm saying is true. It says, indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. I love that. Because what, see, you got to, a little bit, we need to understand how the Corinthians would have thought. The Corinthians lived strongly in a Greek culture. The Greeks were all about wisdom. They were all about, you know, you got Socrates and Aristotle, those philosophers, you know, that, that all came from Greece. The Greeks were all about this kind of knowledge and, and trying to one-up each other in knowing things. And, and they were particularly impressed by people who could communicate things very clearly. But Paul is actually saying, you know, we, we may not be the most impressive speakers you've ever heard. But we know what we're talking about. And we made it plain to you. We just spoke in the language you understand. We just talk to you like human beings. We didn't have to make this all fancy and gussied up so that you can think we're cool or whatever. He, he was just like, this is not at all what, I, what we're about. We just want to speak the plain, simple truths of the gospel to you. And I think that's uh, where we're, this is a little bit of a side note. I'm going to make fun of seminarians for a second. People who go to seminary, then they become pastors. Um, they got to learn like nobody talks like they do in seminary. They just, nobody does. <laughs> Seminaries are completely their own little bubbles. And so we don't rattle off words like soteriology here. We don't rattle off words like, you know, uh, superlapsarianism. These are real words and nobody uses them, but seminarians do. So pastors have to learn over time, like speak the truth and speak it clearly. Just talk to people like they're people. And that's great. So that's where we're at. Um, but That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, we just spoke plainly to you. We don't need to be all fancy and use these crazy words. We just talk to you. So anyways, as we get through this, um, Paul's telling us we've got to assess what we're being taught. Now, here's the thing. To do that, we need to measure what we're being taught against something else, which is our Bibles. We need to immerse ourselves in what God says so that we will know and can sniff out a false teacher. If we don't know our Bibles, we're not going to know what's true and what's not. We have one source. And that's why, you know, I I really don't try to just tell you about my opinions on everything. I know sometimes that slips in and that's, I'm a human and that happens, right? But we just try to talk about the Bible 
And we encourage you to have your Bibles with you, to actually look at them, because we want you to have the resources to do this on your own and actually go, you know what? I don't think he's right about that. And you know what? I'm not always right. I fully admit that. Some of you have called me out over the years on things that I've said, and that's good. And I take that to heart, and I, and I try to make, make amends if it's, if it's wrong. And there are plenty of times that that's happened over these, these years. So, again, we have to look at the scriptures as our highest authority. There's no super apostle that we're submitting to. Ultimately, it's not me that's a, that this thing's about. It's Jesus and his word. And so we need to read our Bibles. We need to know them. The other side of this is that, is that we, we are always being discipled by something. So the question is, is what are we being discipled by? Are we, are we allowing the scriptures to speak into our hearts on a, at a pace and at a level that outweighs all the craziness of the world that we're immersing in? Do we hear the good news of the Bible or do we scroll endlessly through our, our news sites and just immerse ourselves in bad news? Guys, it's going to affect you. It will. The Bible speaks the truths of God. It, it sets, sets up this whole thing into perspective. It, it's this, it establishes that this is not our home Heaven is our home. The, the new heavens and new earth that Christ will create and, and, and dwell with us in, that's ultimately our home. This is just our temporary kind of place. We don't need to be immersed in this. We need to be immersed in who Jesus is. And we need to continue to spend more time with him because the, the person or people who spend the most time with us are gonna have the biggest influence in our life. So immerse yourself in God's word. Be all about it. And that's how, that's one of the ways that we can sniff out false teaching. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7 through 11. Let's read these and then we'll back up and go back to verse 7. It says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them uh, in order to serve you. And when I was with you I, and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth was. That was the region. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. All right, let's back up to verse 7 again. Um, here's, the, here's the main thing, right? If we're, if we're looking at the teaching, there's another thing we have to look at too. And that is their lives. The lives of these people. Paul is saying... He's essentially contrasting himself with these super apostles. Now, last week in chapter 10, he told us not to compare, okay? And it might seem like he's comparing now. He's not comparing, he's contrasting, <laughs> okay? It's different. He's showing the difference between him and them. That's, and that's important. It's important. He's not comparing himself in a way that goes, man, I wish I was as cool as they are. Or I wish that, 
you know, they were as cool as me. It's not that. It's, it's, I want you to see my life and how I live versus their life and how they live. Now, let's see how that plays out. Verse 7, it says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Right, again, let's, let's step back into a, a Greek mindset for a moment, an ancient Greek mindset. The, in the ancient Greek world, there was um, a mentality that's still true today to some degree, which is you get what you pay for, okay? And when somebody would come into town and, and presume to have some sort of wisdom to offer, then what, what they would tend to do is they would try to gin up a crowd and have that crowd pay them uh, in order to share what was said and, and basically, the Corinthians are living in a mindset that if we don't pay for this, it's not worth our time. If we're not paying for this information, why, why is it valuable to us? That's how they thought. That's how they worked. And yet Paul comes in and humbles himself and says, you know what? I'm not charging you a dime. I'm bringing you God's gospel free of charge. And and then he goes so far in verse 8 and 9 um, of saying that it wasn't really free of charge for everybody because Paul had to eat, he had to live, he needed an income. So how did he get that income? Well, we know in other places Paul did work. He built tents or made tents as part of his thing. But here we also see that he raised money from other churches. He actually says he robbed money from other churches um, because he's, I think, angry at the Corinthians a little bit here, <laughs> okay? He's not saying he literally robbed a church. He's saying, I asked other churches to give me money to live and do this ministry so that you wouldn't have to when he knows the Corinthians are filthy rich and could have easily done this. But he's choosing not to make them pay because he didn't want to be a stumbling block for the true gospel. And the true gospel is the gospel of God's free grace. It's not cheap grace, God's grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life, but it is free. It's free grace. And so Paul, just knowing the Corinthian situation, understanding where they were culturally, he's going, I, I can't charge them money. I can't ask them to tithe and pay, my, pay me a, a, a stipend to live. I can't do that because they're going to misinterpret this. And so he wrote, uh, robbed, so to speak, other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve the Corinthians. And then he goes even further in verse 9 and says, When I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. So there was a point where the money obviously dried up and he was having some struggles. He didn't go to the Corinthians and say, Please give me money now. He, instead, God provided for Paul by sending some Macedonians who we know from chapters 9, uh, 8 and 9, were dirt poor. They were under some extreme poverty, and yet they were just being generous. And they gave Paul what he needed. And so then Paul goes on to say, so I refrained and will continue to refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul's going, I'm not, I'm not going there because he knows that they would not understand what he's asking them to do. So essentially, here's what Paul's doing. He's contrasting 
his situation with the Corinthians to the super apostles. Now, he doesn't say, you know, he kind of implies, I guess, that the super apostles are charging money, right? That's the implication here. The super apostles are showing up and going, you know, we, you, you want to hear what we have to say? Cough up. Come on. They're charging admission. And by the way, there's a, there's a biblical reason churches don't charge admission. One, no one would come. And two, right here, the, the ministry of the gospel is free. Now, of course, as, as believers, we're also called to give. And so that's, that's, that's where, you know, generosity steps in. But it's always optional. It's never demanded in, in healthy gospel-centered churches. I know that there are churches that do not live that way. And that's, that's a shame. But that's where this is coming from, right? We're seeing in the Apostle Paul's ministry this desire to not be like the super apostles and be demanding of the Corinthians for his services to them. And so what Paul points out here is really two things. At the bookends of this section, he first talks about humility, humbling himself. And then at the end, he talks about, in verse 11, at the very end, he talks about uh, love. He says, why did I do all this? He's kind of summarizing his whole point in this paragraph. Why? Because I don't love you? Of course I do. God knows I do. So here's, how, here's what Paul's saying. His life is marked by humility and love. And by contrast, the super apostles are marked by pride and selfishness. Um, in other words, simply put, Paul's saying, look at their lives. Look at how they're living. Do they really love you and are humble towards you? Or are they proud and selfish trying to gain from you? This is where things, um, obviously, as we look at our own world, um, it can be a little bit harder to discern these things if we don't know the people who are ministering to us. Right? From a distance, listening on the radio or, or watching something on, on TV of a preacher or, or following a ministry online. Yeah, we don't always know what, what these people are doing with, with their income, but there are things that come up that really the Lord does do to show people's true character. And I could name names, but I won't because I'm not going to be that guy. But there have been numerous pastors in the last couple of years who are famous. You probably know their names, who are not in ministry anymore. And a lot of it, all of it boils down to character, either around how they treat people, their love, or around how they use money, their selfishness. And so I'm not the one who brought up the money thing, the Bible did, so let's just talk about it for a second here. Um, Obviously, churches have to function. They need money. We ask you to give out of the generosity of your heart. We never put that on you as a demand. Never will, ever. Um, but, but as you look at other ministries and, other, and consider following other leaders and looking at things like this, we do need to look at their lives. And I know if we're not in life with them, it's hard to know who they are. But here's one, here's one little way we can do this. If you are able to, look at the kind of house they live in. I know that sounds mean, but it's but It's true. If they're building a 10-bedroom mansion up on a hill somewhere and all the rest of their church is just like living normal lives, you know there's something wrong. It doesn't matter how good they preach. It doesn't matter what they say. 
if, if they can't be humble and live a normal life like the rest of their church, and they're, they're clearly in it for something else, there's clearly something wrong. And, and man, there have been so many church leaders, ministry leaders, famous big church pastors who have been taken down because of the size of their house. Because you know what? That's a reflection of their heart. It's not about the house. It's about the reflection of, of it on their heart. So in simple terms, does their life pass the sniff test? You know the sniff test? You all know the sniff test. It's great. Pull a jug of milk out. Look at the date, little on the edge. Give it a sniff. Like, all right. Like, does it pass the sniff test? Nobody's going to be perfect. You're never measuring people against Jesus Christ because we'll always fall short of that. But does their life, generally speaking, pass the sniff test? Do they actually... Do they actually live what they speak? Do they actually you know, seem to be loving and humble people as best as possible? And again, I think, I think a lot of it uh, comes out as time goes on and as you get to know people. But that's, that's where we're at. That's what, G, that's what Paul's saying. Does looking at his life, looking at the super apostles, which one passes the sniff test? That's the, that's the issue. All right, one more. Um, verse 12 through 15 says, and what, I'm, what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness in their end, or their end rather, will correspond to their deeds. Okay, so um, here's I think where Paul is going with this. He doesn't say this word, he doesn't use the word, but I think the idea here is clear. Um, I think he's telling us we need to look for God's wisdom. We need to look for God's wisdom. We need to discern people's lives. Here's why. Because it's not as easy to spot as we think. You know, he uses this analogy of disguise. We live in the north, so let's use camouflage. Okay, You all know camouflage. You don't go into the woods to hunt screaming at the top of your lungs that you're there to hunt because the deer are going to hear you, smell you, and run off, and you'll never get any, anywhere close to them. No, you put yourself in a place where they can't see you. And, and the idea here is that these super apostles are disguising themselves as true apostles. They're camouflaging themselves as, as men who are servants of righteousness. They are doing these tactics. They want you to actually think that they are the real thing. Why? Because that's how they deceive and trick, right? So Satan never comes to us in red tights and horns with a pitchfork because you'll look at him and go, well, that's the devil. That seems kind of weird. Why is he here? Doesn't do that. He disguises himself as an angel of light. What he says sounds reasonable. What he says is plausible. He's a very good liar. And I love, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. 
I read it about once a year because it's very short. It's very easy to read. And it gives some incredible insight, at least from Lewis's perspective on spiritual warfare and temptation. But he wrote it from the perspective of one demon teaching a younger apprentice demon how to be a demon. It's kind of crazy, right? And, uh, it, but in the very beginning of the book, in the foreword, Lewis writes these words before he gets into the story. He says, do not assume that what these, these devils are saying is true because the devil's a liar. You can't even trust what he says from their own per point of view. So, so basically you're reading it going, is that true? Is that not true? And it's, it's an amazing book. You should read it or listen to it on audio book or whatever, but it's, a, it's interesting. So regardless, that's how, that, that gives us some insight into how the devil operates. He doesn't do this in a blatant, obvious way. He, he's subtle. And so are the people on his team. That's what Paul's saying. These super apostles are disguising, camouflaging themselves as servants of righteousness and their boss does the same thing. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So we, we, we have to recognize that it's not as easy to spot as we think. Um, Charles Hodge, who is a theologian in the 19th century, he writes that Satan does not come to us as Satan Neither does sin present itself to us as sin. Lewis says elsewhere, he also says, uh, indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, milestones, or signposts. The safest road to hell is a gentle one, a a gradual one. You're not going to get kicked off a cliff. It's going to be a slow and steady decline. Because if we're not pursuing the wisdom and discernment of God, we're going to be duped and led astray by things that sound plausible, that sound legitimate. So how do we know, how do we discern? Let's close with this. How do we do this? Well, it's like when, I don't know if this is exactly true, but I've always heard this said, that when when people who work for the government and their, their job is to spot counterfeit money, the way they do that is they study the real thing until they know every tiny bit of it. So that way when they spot a counterfeit, they can see that it's not lining up perfectly. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's what I've heard. Either way, the analogy works. We have to know the real thing if we're gonna, know the, if we're gonna be able to spot the false things. And so let me just take you to two quick places. Ezekiel 34, which is gonna show us Uh, the contrast between uh, selfish leaders and the heart of God. And then I want to take us back to the New Testament, to the book of Acts chapter 20, where Paul kind of shows how this works out in the ministry of the local church in a healthy church, a gospel-centered church. So first, Ezekiel 34, we're going to read 1 to 6, kind of sets up the, the framework. Skip down to verse 11. And then we'll, we'll read to verse 16. That'll kind of give us the, um, the main idea here. All right, Ezekiel 34, 1 to 6 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So God says to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, he's not talking about the people who watch sheep. He's talking about the people who are watching over the, the people, the leaders, the elders, the, the, the people who are in charge of caring for this this congregation of Israel. He says, prophesy against them. 
Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, you lo- the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there, were, there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So that's the condition that Ezekiel is, is in. And he's, telling, he's being told to say this to the leaders. Now let's skip down to verse 11. God says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the people's I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Now listen to these last two verses. It says, I myself, this is God speaking, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So here's an Old Testament prophecy of God saying, I will be the shepherd my people need. You, you fast forward to John chapter 10 and Jesus says what? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See the contrast? You don't f- feed yourself. You don't care for yourself over the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what God does for us in Christ. Now, how does that actually work in the local church? This is where the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, really is helpful. Going to Acts chapter 20, uh, there's so much here. I wish we could take this whole chapter, but let's just take 24 um, through 35. So to set up the context, Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He's been with them for three years. He's trained them. He's, he's led them towards being capable leaders for the church. Now he's going on to his death. He knows he's leaving and he knows he's going to die. He knows the end is, is Rome. The Romans are going to kill him. He knows that. He just doesn't know exactly when. But so he knows he's never going to see these people again and they're saying goodbye. But here's what Paul says, verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's mission. That's your mission too. That's my mission. That's what we're all here to do. 
Let's, let's not count our lives as any value, but let's just do the ministry God's given us to testify to the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. I go on. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See that? The whole counsel of God. He's not hiding anything about the Bible from them. The whole counsel of God. Then he says, then he turns to these elders and he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Sounds like what's happening in Corinth, right? Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Then look at this, verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Saying, look at my life. Look at how I lived among you for three years. I didn't covet your stuff. I didn't want your money. I was just here to preach the gospel to you. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's Paul's final words to the Ephesian elders as he's boarding a boat to leave. And here's the deal. Paul's whole life and, and our whole lives, our whole ministries, everything that we're about, should be about Jesus. It should be about pointing people to the real Jesus, the real, true God shown to us in Scripture. We should not delude him. We should not manipulate it. We should not make it watered down for the people who need to hear the truths of God's Word. We should not get distracted from this or led away. We need to keep close to him. Knowing that he's our true shepherd, but the men that, that God has raised up in the church to help lead it and guide it are under shepherds. We're under Jesus. We're meant to just be pointing people to Jesus. And, and whenever a church gets off that mission and the leaders go rogue and just do their own thing, that's where everything goes horribly wrong. We need to keep each other accountable to follow Jesus, to stay close to him, to keep pressing in, to keep living lives of, of integrity by grace. And that's what I need. That's what you need. All of us are in that boat together. We're all here rowing in the same direction towards Jesus Christ, knowing that he's at the front of the boat leading us on, guiding us all the way. There's a lot of hope in this. There's also a lot of room for us to grow. But let's just keep focused on the real Jesus. That's what it's got to be about, who he really is. And who he really is, it's found here. We know him here. Let's not give up on it. All right, I've talked enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we do just want you today. We want to know you. Uh, we, want, we want you, the real you. 
and you want us, the real us. And so um, we're thankful, Lord, that there is so much grace to be found in you, more grace than there is sin in us. And we pray that you would just shower us today in your, in your kindness, that you would just show us um, who you really are and help us to keep pursuing you with our full hearts and all of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.